Speaker, life transitions expert, and radio personality extraordinaire, Paula Shaw. Honey, maybe you could say that one more time. I think I've waited all my life to hear. Well, now it lives in perpetuity forever. Uh, All right. And I am here with my beautiful writer, entrepreneur, musician daughter, Erin Shaw. Present. Present. I'm present. Present. Oh, I was thinking, <laughs> I thought you were going somewhere I'm else. I'm also a present in your life. You are I'm my happy darling. to have been giving you my presence for 32 <laughs> years. This just got really weird. Let's move on. Okay. There's nothing wrong with mutual admiration. <laughs> um, absolutely. So tonight, we're, tonight's theme is, what's our theme? What is our theme? Your history is not your destiny. All right. So we're talking tonight about how, well, I don't know if I'm going to explain it as well as our guest, so. Well, I'll give you a little briefing, but I would really like our guest to go into it in depth because the bottom line is, I think we have a lot of people in our country and in the planet, on the planet, that think that Sort of like if my mother had heart problems, I'm going to have heart problems. If my family couldn't do well financially, I can't do well financially. You know, we feel like our history is our destiny. We're locked in somehow to the the health, the body stuff, the whatever of our ancestors, the The people that came before us. The cage of our genetics. And tonight we have a well. We're filming on an evening, so we're going to probably say tonight, but Mm -hmm. today. Uh, We have a really special guest who's here to tell us that that isn't necessarily your fate. Absolutely. And we're pretty psyched to hear that. And tell us that that's not necessarily our fate from a scientific perspective. Love it. That woman I am so proud to introduce, both as my dear friend and, I think, one of the major brilliant people on this planet, Ms. Colvinder Kaur who is a scientist and, well, was brought here from the University of Oxford, England, (laughs) as an alien of extraordinary ability. (laughs) Hashtag. And I say after knowing her for a few years, she is. (laughs) I'm not sure the alien part fits, but that's the description that she was actually brought to the U.S. under. Since her move to California, she has applied her love of genetics to understanding the scientific basis of integrative medicine, which I can't wait to talk to her about. Mm-hmm. She, her passion is to provide empirical scientific evidence to the alterations of our cells that occur when our innate healing capacity is activated. And I don't blame you for having to read that off a piece of paper because I wouldn't have been able to remember Well, yeah, and I have no idea what it means yet. (laughs) (laughs) But I know we're going to find out by the end of this interview. So Colby... But the last piece I want to say in interviewing Dr. Colby (laughs) is her TEDx talk in Winnipeg 
was an incredible, incredibly exciting talk because she helped people understand and build greater compassion through an understanding of our genetically encoded subconscious responses to different environmental stimuli. Boom. Now that is a question in itself. So let's start. Welcome, Colby. Welcome, Colby. Hi, Colby. What does it mean? Well, let's welcome her first. We welcome. She knows I welcome her. I but love our, her. I know, but our listeners don't know that now we'd like to Are welcome. Are we going to have a mother-daughter moment here about how to welcome somebody? We might. It could make for an interesting <laughs> podcast moment. Dr. Colby. Welcome, Colby. I'm feeling very, very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so could we move on, I don't know. I want to one more time and welcome her. Yes. Okay. We're excited to have you, Colby. Thanks for Actually, I have talked with you many times about this TEDx talk you did because... I use this information in my practice all the time. What you came up with, I believe, if I understand it correctly, is that what happens to us, what we experience in our life, actually changes our genetics. And then we pass that changed genetic structure on to our children. Is that correct? Absolutely. Ooh, Firstly, I'd good. like to say thank you so much for having me Yay. here and um, maybe explain a little bit of context for Please that. Do. Please do. Please do. In your beautiful introduction, you spoke about how um, we feel particular predispositions to a way of being. Um, what we don't learn at school and what we're not taught, so we think about genetics as this is something I inherited from my mother and my father and therefore this is the way I will move mm. through life. Right. What we don't learn at school, though, is that actually that um, our skin color, our eye color, our hair color is encoded by just 5% of the whole, all, of all of the genes in our body or all of the genetic makeup in our body. There's another 95% of our genetics that doesn't give us our hair color, skin color, eye color, our physical wow. form. 95%. 95%. What does it give us? Well... In, at least in my perspective and from what I know and um, what I'm working on right now, that's where the seeds of our consciousness are planted and that's mm -hmm. the part of our DNA that we really have control over and that we can change and that's the part of our DNA that epigenetics works on. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about that 5% of genetics, mm -hmm. does that involve anything like hereditary illnesses? Where would that be imprinted, those sorts of things? Like if you think you have a predisposition to cancer, for example. Yeah, that would be in the 5%, in that 5%. for example. So the BRCA gene is a very well-known example, the breast cancer gene. So mm -hmm. that is in the 5% of the genes that encode for our physical form. Wow. And 95% yeah. we're still learning. Well, 95% was designated as junk DNA when wow. it was first um, looked at by, by scientists. Term. But um, I think we're now beginning to understand that there's a whole lot of treasure in that junk. Wow. So tell us some of the kinds of things that exist in the junk. What are those genes determining? Well, in the so it's the space between the genes, basically, ah. and um, in the space between the genes, we have all of the things that determine whether a gene is switched on or switched off uh -huh. in a given moment in time. So when we speak about epigenetics and we speak about being able to change our genes, what we're really saying is, are we switching a gene on or are we switching a gene oh. off at a given moment in time? Wow. When we talk about ancestral trauma. Mm -hmm. Some people come into the world with 
a particular gene switched off because something that happened in their lineage to their grandparents or their great-great-grandparents switched off a gene in their in in their junk DNA mm-hmm. that now doesn't enable them to be to, it really switches off a part of their brain of their neural development and so part of that particular individual's healing if they want to transcend that space of that gene being switched off is to find a modality that will switch it back on again so what's a great uh, or a quintessential example of that like somebody really suffering exactly from exactly what i was gonna say see we're back on the same wavelength <laughs> yeah always on the same <laughs> so what's a, like a what's a quintessential example like someone whose descendant was a slave perhaps or someone who grandparents could have been part of the holocaust or genocide and how or... would it show up maybe Absolutely. There have been some wonderful, um, some really, really powerful studies on um, on genocide victims, on people whose ancestors were in famine. Mm-hmm. And um, the changes in their genetics are very discernible. We can actually see that they have genes. So there was a brilliant study just published, I think it was a couple of months ago, in Finnish populations where they looked at children who were conceived during a famine and their siblings siblings who were conceived outside of the famine and they found that the siblings that were born during the famine um, had higher rates of diabetes, had higher rates of heart mm. disease. Wow. Um, and they were genetic. So they, they inherited the same genes from their parents, but right. there was trauma in the genes of those um, children that were conceived during the famine. Could that... This is slightly off topic or tangential, but could that affect siblings born? Let's say one sibling was born during a harmonious point of the parents' marriage, and then another sibling was mm. born when there was, you know, fighting or drama of some kind. Would that sort would that show up similarly in their genetic makeup? Do you think? Absolutely, I believe so. But I think more than that, one of the kind of wonderful things about epigenetics is really how we can see how that shifts. Mm-hmm. when um, when the family comes into harmony. Really? And, yeah, when the work... So one of the things that I've been really working on or coming to understand recently is uh, a little bit more metaphysical, but it's how the actions of one person in a family unit can really have a great impact on the rest of the family unit. Wow. And so actually change resonance. the genetic structure of the other members? Um, I haven't tested that personally, mm-hmm. but I, I, I believe so. I've seen, um, there's definite evidence to mm-hmm. suggest that the actions of a given individual can, that as they write, um, raise their vibration, which um, vibration mm-hmm. is a great way of changing these epigenetic markers because mm-hmm. they actually sit on our DNA. So what you're trying to do and to switch off a gene. So Really, it's an actual molecule that's sitting on your DNA. So if you raise your vibration, there's a possibility that that bond can break that's mm-hmm. causing that molecule that's sitting on the DNA to then no longer be on there. And so if you, as your vibration raises, then it's my understanding and my belief that um, you can raise the vibration of those people around you. So let me ask you a question in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Because so often in my practice, I'll have people who show up who are really discouraged because let's say the teenage child is acting out. Mm-hmm. No matter what they do, they can't find the answer. Mm-hmm. They can't make it better. 
and there's this heavy level of discouragement on mm-hmm. the part of the mother, the father, even the siblings. Mm-hmm. Would that be a case where this might alter in the other direction? Maybe cause like gene, gene alteration, right, because of this living in this constant mm-hmm. negative situation. Mm, absolutely, but mm. one thing I really love to say, and I feel that it's true, is be the change you wish to see in yourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the world around you can't help but follow. Very true. Mm. So if that change starts within yourself, you will see that vibration move out into the rest of the world. Uh Um, How did you get into this kind of work, Colby? uh, So I was a traditional scientist for the longest time. As uh, Paula mentioned from my bio, I was a, a scientist of genomic medicine for 14 years. And I was offering the tools of genetics to the to, to physicians mm-hmm. um, looking at the five percent of our DNA and offering genetic diagnostics for various illnesses but there was it felt like there was something disempowering about saying to somebody you have a defective gene mm-hmm. yeah. and this is your lot in life yeah and um, then after I was recruited to the US biotech industry I um, I I felt that that really wasn't my calling in life mm-hmm. to really offer that kind of information to people. And then I started to wonder about how it could, how valuable it would be to offer the same tools that I'd been using throughout my career, but mm-hmm. to a different demographic, wow. a historically underserved demographic, phys- uh, healers mm-hmm. or the integrative medicine community and have not been traditionally offered the tools of science or the tools of genetic mm-hmm. medicine. And I feel that there's a real void there. There's yeah. a gap there that could be filled. And once it's filled, could be really, really powerful. We hear stories of healing, of miraculous healing yeah. all the time. I'm not, I think that those miracles um, are actually really very much grounded in physiological change. Wow. So being able to document that change, being able to see those changes at a molecular level, mm-hmm. I think is really valuable to, to help people understand that actually it, there's, it's not really, it's not, it, it, there's no, there's not really a separation between something being a healing and going to a medical practitioner. There's just a really nice spectrum there. And if we can offer evidence or information to a, the demographic that offer a different way of making somebody feel better right then does that then become evidence and become an accepted way of of, of moving through life yeah we you know i got a question please <laughs> i'm bursting to ask you <laughs> i know in my own practice mm-hmm. i use a lot of the tools of energy psychology mm-hmm. so we may be tapping on meridian points we may be working with the energy centers mm-hmm. the biofield the subconscious mind mm-hmm. But what I'm wondering is, I know we can create emotional shift. Mm-hmm. We can create a, a mental shift. Mm-hmm. Is that showing up as genetic change, or is it just on those mental or emotional levels? Uh, all interconnected. My my fervent belief is that those emotional and um, sorry, what did you, you said? Emotional shift Me- and, and mental, mental mm-hmm. shifts. I think that those are the results of the cellular shifts that are occurring in that uh, individual. On genetic levels. Uh, yep. Yeah, so actually what the work we're doing 
is turning out a human being with a little different genetic structure that's that they I, would 100%. be passing on. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. That's so pretty exciting. Can I ask you to tell the story about your client who mm-hmm. you talked to where this this work shed some sure. light? Because well, everything you guys are saying is super fascinating, but I'm, I'm not tracking as well because I think... Because you want a, a concrete example. Yeah, I think I want like a little bit more of layman's terms. Mm-hmm. So like what does this mean for real people? Not real, but like the everyday Joes you yeah. know, for, in layman's terms. Uh, how could this affect just a, a random person on the street? And, and well, work. I'll tell you the example of my client, and, and you, Dr. Colby, can tell me if it's what I think it is. This is a woman who, in her own present life, had no real experience with, with um, difficulty, with poverty, with um, lack of security, with any of those things. In fact, she was very well situated, you know, and lived in a lovely home, great husband, all that stuff. But she had this underlying fear. Now, I should say she was a Jewish woman who did grow up in Israel, the newly formed Israel after the Holocaust, and heard many stories from people about what that had been like. But her, in her own life, had absolutely no experience in connection with that except through stories. And, but she was experiencing this debilitating depression And she didn't understand it because looking at her life, you'd go, she should be the happiest person on the earth. And after I heard you talk about this concept, because I know your TED Talk, as you shared with me, you discussed this in your TED Talk. And I thought, wow, maybe there's something there for her. So I shared with her this idea that you talked about how what we experience actually changes our genetic structure. And all of a sudden, she burst into tears and said, I worry about the Holocaust happening again every day. And she'd never known the Holocaust. So is that something, could that have like come through the genetics, this worry about it? Because she worried about specific things. I worry that I need to please people so they won't call the police on us. I worry about having enough money in the bank and and money at Mm -hmm. home so we won't run out. Can that kind of vivid experience be passed on genetically? A hundred percent, actually. And wow, that's um, that's that kind of a story is actually what really stimulated this research. The one of the most powerful studies on epigenetics was performed by a couple of scientists who were looking around um, in a city, um, Atlanta, Georgia, and they noticed that the children there had were stuck in this cycle. They called it a cycle of poverty and Mm -hmm. of addiction and of violence. And they knew that they, uh, by observing, they knew that there was something more to what was happening with these children than they were mimicking their parental behavior. Wow. It was just deeper than Mm -hmm. could come from observation. Absolutely. So they went back to the lab and they conceived of this really pretty interesting experiment where they took a mouse and they conditioned the mouse to fear a particular scent by um, giving the mouse a small electric shock when it was exposed to the scent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they bred from this mouse. And three generations down the line... Oh, were all afraid when they of the, scent the same scent without ever having exposed to the small electric shock. So does that wow. mean that younger generations are just screwed? Like, are millennials like exponentially more... Uh, at a disadvantage to this because there are, are 
just more there's more of a history there could be a longer history of trauma like for example uh somebody born during the depression versus somebody born you know when i was born in the 80s like that's two generations back so Mm -hmm. would i have more of a risk of i don't want to say exposure that seems like the wrong word but let's go with exposure to more generational trauma that could have affected me than say my great-grandparents um, I'm not sh- I, I think it really varies from person to person. Uh, many millennials will have been born to parents who might have been around during the transcendental meditation sort of era mm, or exactly the yoga what I was thinking. A lot of that clears these lesions, I'll call them lesions or these, mm-hmm. uh, these genetic, mm-hmm. um, lesions is the word that... Yeah. Scars. Yeah, exactly. So um, so I might actually be in better shape than my mom whose parents lived through the Depression. I think, and, and tell me if I'm right or wrong, I think it would depend on whether those people had done any work to heal those issues. That's exactly right? what I believe too. And okay. I think that that's, I, when I first came to California, I would hear yogis saying um, this, this meditation or this work will clear trauma from seven generations into the past and seven generations into mm-hmm. the future and this wow. is Sanskrit wisdom and I thought oh my god these people are insane what are <laughs> they saying seven generations and now I really think that they were talking about epigenetics I huh. think that they were talking about about really clearing ancestral trauma and then not passing on that ancestral trauma to the to future generations do you think some people who are highly spiritual might just kind of have have innately known even if they couldn't put uh, like a, I don't want to say label because that's a negative connotation, but like a, a word for it. If they, could, if they couldn't say, oh, epigenetics, ancestral trauma, but maybe just innately they oh, had this, this idea. ancient wisdom. That's mm-hmm. what's so sumptuous about it. That's mm-hmm. what I love about it. We're taking ancient wisdom and putting a language mm-hmm. that's more accessible to a modern society on exactly. it. But it's nothing new. It's something that in our in our in ourselves we've known throughout history yeah it's sort of like acupuncture you know mm-hmm. like long ago they couldn't they didn't have the machinery to see actually where the points and the flows mm-hmm. were somebody just intuited and or somehow sensed it saw it figured it out mm-hmm. now we have the machinery to back it up Absolutely. and the science to back it up so what you're actually saying i think is these things that people have known on some sort of intuitive mm-hmm. hardwired level okay. we're now figuring out scientifically so now that we yep. have this information which is revolutionary and obviously only positive things can come from these revelations so what's the next step you know like we've got your scientific mm-hmm. research and your ted talk where you talk about this we've got on the other side of the coin we have paula here who's a healer and works mm. with these modalities so how do we marry those two yeah, what do we do uh, with yeah, like, it? What do we do with mm-hmm. it? Like, what's the next step? How do we help people make life better? Well, I think we have a wonderful opportunity right now, actually, to really um, empower individuals with this information so that they can make more informed decisions um, with regard to their own personal well-being or personal health regimen. Um, and that can be as simple as taking a a, spe- a saliva specimen before a healing modality and a second mm-hmm. one afterwards and then looking at the shifts that have occurred wow. during that process. Um, so it's basically just giving people a place to pinpoint where then they can bring in whatever healing modality works for them and then 
try to relieve that trauma in some way. Is my understanding yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. We call okay. it precision wellness. Oh, that's awesome. I love that term. Mm-hmm. Did you make that up? Uh, yeah, it's the tagline of my company. Oh! Oh, let's plug the company. <laughs> and your new company about to be launched is? Uh, it's called Crayomix. Crayomix. Mm. How do you spell that, dear? Uh, K-R-E-O-M-I-C-S. And what does it That's mean? It must poetic. be some special word. Uh, it came about after a bit, a lot of uh, thinking. I had this huge um, Excel spreadsheet. I really wanted a company name that could convey this idea that there's very little separation, or no separation, actually. There's a unity between science and spirituality mm-hmm. or sci- or ancient wisdom and modern technology and creo is actually an esperanto word esperanto is a kind of language that was created i think in the 1960s as a language of hope for the future it was a universal oh, language lovely and uh, it's one of the few <laughs> languages you want to take lessons i miss that one yeah <laughs> i want to study that <laughs> it, well, it's a beautiful language but mm. creo is the esperanto word for creation and it's a really nice uh, but it's also the esperanto word for creator so it there's no separation mm. between the creator and its creation mm. oh that's lovely that's really really sweet and this company will do what kinds of things specifically uh, we're a, really a consulting firm that offer the tools of genomic medicine to the integrative health community. Mm. Um, Which I'm assuming is very much needed. Well, there's a void there. Um, I think traditionally the integrative health community have been s- severely underserved by science. Yeah. And I feel that that's a real travesty, actually, because um, people deserve to have data to inform their decisions. Yes. So you're backing up Eastern medicine with a bit more of a Western medicine style data. Or, or uh, mm. I don't know how I want to say that, but you know people look at Western medicine as based in science, right? Sure. And Eastern medicine is based in ancient wisdom or intuition. Mm-hmm. And with your consulting firm, you're able to give more of an Eastern medicine the data to back it up so that it could become more mainstream. Is that fair to say? Uh, I think so, yeah. I think... Um... I think that it's just a language. So people are very comfortable with the language of um, allopathic medicine or, or Western medicine. So they're very comfortable because they feel that there's an evidence base to that. Right. Um, the evidence base of integrative medicine is that we feel better. <laughs> and that's a very powerful evidence. It's an mm-hmm. underappreciated evidence base. Yeah. Um, so it's really a support tool or an empowerment tool for people people who feel better to be able to go out into the world and understand that that feeling better is really based in a cellular shift or wow. a molecular so an evidence mm-hmm. so you're fighting the good fight Colby yeah. <laughs> and I We're think so it, it's so wonderful because many modalities you know like a lot of the ones I use energy psychology mm-hmm. we knew they made people feel better mm-hmm. we knew they were working but we didn't know why right and so what I see you doing is sort of like a study that was done at Harvard a few years back where they stimulated points on the side of the eye while doing an fMRI in real time. Mm-hmm. So they actually saw it sent calming signals sure. to the amygdala, which was getting ready to prepare this person for fight, flight, or freeze. 
And when I share that with people, mm-hmm. it's like they're so much more open yeah. mm-hmm. to trying this yeah. rather than taking another pill mm-hmm. or doing that th- or, or accepting the diagnosis that destines mm-hmm. something that may be what, not what they want. Well, I think mm-hmm. people feel comfortable when they have evidential proof of something exactly. because people have a problem just not a problem, but not everybody's willing to just put blind faith in something, particularly when their health is at stake, right? Exactly. So mm. if you can actually say, well, here's an alternative you know, healing modality, but here's evidential proof that it works mm-hmm. or will help you or whatever, that people will be hopefully more open to, to taking fewer pills and maybe tapping more meridian points right. or whatever it is, you know? <laughs> well, wow. I am... Beyond thrilled with what you're doing, not only because I think you're incredibly brilliant and I love all that you bring, because there are so many other things I know you've done. You've helped them find the embryos that were most viable to help women get pregnant. I mean, your science works on so many levels, but I love that you've taken this lean toward being that scientific resource for the alternative or, or, um, Um, compatible medicine community because I think a lot of people right now want to go more natural Mm -hmm. you know let's not do so many drugs let's find other ways to work on ourselves and improve our health in ways that aren't detrimental and don't have side effects and all of that and also to give people mm. an understanding of why they might be feeling certain ways that might Mm. be baffling them you know those sort of more vague Mm -hmm. esoteric hard to describe feelings that people experience rather than just saying, well, there's a history of depression in your family. Right. Mm -hmm. Like now you can say more Mm -hmm. and give them like an understanding because I think, I I mean, you know, I've struggled with anxiety and Mm -hmm. that could be from some ancestral trauma of Mm -hmm. mine, but the Mm -hmm. idea that you're not at fault in Mm -hmm. some way or you're not damaged or you're not broken, that this is actually stemming from something in your history Maybe it, it will help people who struggle with any sort of illness, whether it's physical or mental or emotional, mm-hmm, exactly. to feel less damaged or like they are messed mm-hmm. up or they did something wrong, and so they don't have to feel like damaged goods. I think and that you know, can be really empowering. Knowledge is power. And to have the mm. capacity to shift those. Yes. Yeah. Shift that, I think, is really, really That's the thing. Crucial. I think if we know, if we understand what's going on, mm-hmm. and we feel like we have the power to shift it, as you just mm-hmm. said, whoa, that puts you on a whole other level oh, in yes. terms of dealing with the realities of your life. So Well, we'll I definitely have to link to your TED Talk when we post this. Oh, my gosh, yes. And where was everyone. that TED? What's it called or how do we find it? Uh, it's called Be the Change You Wish to See in Yourself. Oh, I love it. it. We'll link, I'll link to it on our website and everything so Good. she doesn't have to try to tell people how to find it. But it was in Winnipeg, you said? Yeah, it was the Winnipeg Exchange District. Amazing. I'm so excited. I can't wait to see it. Yay. Thank you, thank you, thank you, my dear friend, thank Dr. Colby Corr. It's been delightful. Mm-hmm. We're so really glad to have you. you. And you must come back because I know there are many other things we need to talk about. Oh my gosh, all the things. I know I'm going to think of more questions now. I feel like we just opened the floodgates. So we'll have to do a part two. Um, well, thank you everyone for tuning in. You can keep up with us on the interwebs. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Podcast Bridges. 
And we are now not just on SoundCloud, but we've made it to Apple Podcasts. <laughs> we're, we're official. And our BridgesPodcast.com website yeah. is always a place to find episodes. You can find everything on our website. You can find information about us. You can find information on how to connect with us if you want to send us hate mail. That's as I, I said, do not suggest. I'm waiting that. for the hate mail. I can't wait. Just kidding. I can't wait for our first hate letter because it's going to be so exciting. That's when you know you've made it. Can I look at that jeans, please? <laughs> yes, if you send any hate also mail, P. it has to come with pee or saliva. Uh,